You and I with Rashmi Shetty is a simple attempt of bringing in stories of people you and I can draw inspiration from. Ordinary folks, extraordinary lives, their uniqueness and individuality that make them interesting to talk to and to listen to. A reaffirmation of the fact, open your eyes wider, the world is far more beautiful when we acknowledge the presence of both you and I. Our guest today is Anju Kish, a thought leader in the space of sex education who has given over a hundred talks at various platforms including schools, parent bodies, corporates, social clubs, organizations and others. Her son's innocent queries on the birds and the bees led her to pursue a course in the Institute of Human Technology and certify herself as a sexuality educator. She then went on to launch her company Untabu, which is dedicated to safety and sex education and providing sexual literacy to kids and teenagers. Her atypical career graph and her anecdotes make her journey interesting to listen to. Taboo to untaboo. Honestly, Anju, the first time we spoke and you told me how you make these so-called taboo subjects so very easy in conversation, especially with children, you intrigued me. What you do and who is Anjukish that the world knows and how was Antabu born is what this journey is going to be about. But first of all, welcome to you and I with Rashmi Shetty. Such a pleasure having this conversation with you, Anju. And I'm waiting to be part of your journey from little Anju to Anju Antabu. Thank you so much, Rashmi. Childhood for me was a lot of fun. You know, I grew up in a joint family in a small town. At that point of time, it was a small town right in the heart of India, a town called Nagpur. Now, uh, you know, being in a joint family and from a small town meant that there were always people around. Family, extended family, friends of extended family, neighbors who were like family, friends of neighbors. You know, the home was always buzzing with people. And I think that's what also has made me a people's person. I always like people around me. Um, now, my mom was a beautiful storyteller, and she still is. Uh, so at, at the age of 85, she had just authored a beautiful book of poems. Every night, uh, we went to sleep listening to stories by her, with my two brothers and me. Now, begging her to tell us, you know, one more Mom is also very creative, so grew up learning to do even small things creatively. She made small things fun, you know, and even a smallest festival or event was made very festive. I think the way I do things today and try to make a normal occasion or event or even a little workshop fun, I think probably stems from there. Um, and I've always been told, um, though sometimes people don't, guess it by my looks but I'm a big prankster 
and having a straight face kind of helps me pull off those pranks very easily. And I think that came from both my mom and my dad. Uh, that's where I get my prankster genes from. You know, I remember this uh, very fun incident where there was a, my mom was having a ladies tea party at home and they spent my mom, my aunt and my grandmom spent the entire day cooking things and they wanted to make pani puri, but they wanted to make the puris also at home. So they made these puris, but all of them turned out to be flat. They didn't rise to the occasion, so to say. So that told them that, you know what, I read somewhere that you put all these puris in a box in an airtight box, leave it for five hours. And when you open it, they all puff up. So they were very excited. It was a big steel box was got and all these puris were put in that. And um, yeah, four hours later when the box was open, lo and behold, they were all perfectly round puffed up puris. You're serious? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just like, you know, your voice says is their eyes also nearly popped out. And I'm sure even the herd, even the neighbors heard their kind of, you know, screams. I'm not surprised. <laughs> now, unknown to the knife, them, my dad had gone to the market, purchased the perfect puris and replaced them with the flat homemade ones. And I was his accomplice in that. So sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think that fun, fun element comes from that. But I think a lot of, uh, I think, I and my siblings were extremely fortunate to, uh, while we were growing up in a small town, which can be very conservative in their approach, hmm. uh, we grew up in a family which was not conservative. Okay. So um, um, that was a man way beyond uh, his time, if I can say that. And um, so he always instilled in us the values, of course, of hard work, honesty, and being good to people. Hmm. But he also has taught us life lessons in a way I've never seen anybody do. Uh, you know, I remember once my brother, older brother was passionately arguing with him about the fact that ghosts exist. Uh, so dad asked him, okay, whether he knew where these ghosts are. And he said, yes, you know, they come out at night at 12 in the night in these absolutely dark and deserted places. So dad said, okay. And the next day at night, he bundled all three of us in the car and my mom. And he drove us to the outskirts of Nagpur, where there were all these farms. Mm -hmm. um, and we stopped there. We walked into the farm. Mom laid out a picnic out there. I still remember eating tandoori chicken at night. <laughs> and then at midnight, he said, okay, is it dark enough? Is it deserted enough? Let's call out the ghost now. And we were like so scared. I said, dad, no. He said, no, no, let's call out. And he started screaming. He said, you know, Bhut Raja, Baharaja. <laughs> we were scared, but after some point, we also followed first in a shaky voice, you know, and then confidently as we realized that, hey, nothing's happening. So when we returned home that night, I think we returned as changed children. Hmm. So all his life teaching to us were, you know, very unconventional methods he used to teach <laughs> us things. So I think what you learn in your childhood at that time, you might be resisting it, but all those things do seep into the way you, you know, deal with life, the way you deal with things. So I'm really, really grateful for uh, absolutely, you know, wonderful uh, childhood that I had the pleasure of having. I do. And you know what? Uh, everything that you're saying falls under this uh, thing of an accepted norm of society this is how it is. My parents and both of them have a great influence on me. 
and all nice and happy. Now, where does untaboo come in the midst of all this and how is Anju the creator there? Yes, absolutely. So in fact, uh, as you rightly said, it all stems from childhood. So the seeds of Antabu were also sold in childhood, though I never realized it at that time, at the point of time. Uh, we didn't grow up with the internet. Our only source of information was, uh, as, you know, as far as anything related to sex or even puberty for that matter, was from um, peers who were as confused as we were um, and older cousins. If they did decide to be generous and talk to you about it. Parents never spoke to us about it. Schools never had these sessions. True. Uh, I do remember uh, my cousin told me the first time I got my periods, my cousin was given the job of explaining it to me. And uh, she told me that, listen, now if you dance with boys, you will get pregnant. You know, trust me, Rashmi, I think she spoiled my teenage years. <laughs> I actually grew up believing that and I was so scared if, you know, while dancing, a guy would just even try to put me in the music would change to a slow music. And for the longest you know, amount of time, I actually believed that I was pretty naive. I didn't have a boyfriend. And uh, yeah, my older cousin, this was the only piece of information she gave me. I was, Rashmi, I was 22 when I, uh, one of my best friends who was married and was in Mumbai and I had come to Mumbai to visit my brother who was, uh, you know, working here. And she was pregnant, this friend of mine, and we were going through her pregnancy book. It was an illustrated book. And I, we saw this picture of the delivery and my mouth fell open. I said, what? Babies come out from down there? And she was aghast that I didn't know. I said, no, no, hang on. I do know. I've heard that babies come out from down there. But I didn't know that there was an opening like this from where babies came out from. I thought, okay, they come out from down there. So maybe they came out from the anus. And imagine the scare of believing that the babies came out from the anus. So every time, you know, you'd have constipation. You'd say, oh my God, how can such a big baby come out of it? It was like stress, trauma, right? Almost the promise that I'm never going to have babies kind of a scenario. So I think at 22 and a lot of time, a lot of my friends don't believe me when I say this, uh, that how can you be so naive at 22? But you can be actually, I was not a science student. I was an art student. And then I went on to do my law. Um, I didn't have friends who Probably they were as clueless as me. My parents didn't speak to me. My school didn't speak to me. How was I supposed to get this information? We didn't have internet at that point of time. So um, at 22, I remember feeling extremely angry at my mom for uh, not talking about these things to me. And I think at that point of time, probably that seed was sown that whenever I have children, I'm going to be extremely open with them. I'm going to answer all their questions honestly, and I'm going to give them these facts of life. Um, so yes, probably the seed was sown at that point of time, but it took a long while and a long journey, long professional twists and turns before I reached the point of sex education. So um, um, I went to a convent school um, by grade eight. I was very sure I wanted to be a writer. I was an avid reader. Uh, during the summer holidays, there were times I would, you know, finish two novels in a day. 
and um, of course also grew up on reading Milson Boone. So there was a lot of romantic nonsense filled up in my head. Uh, actually, it's not nonsense. I still believe in romance. Uh, so, um, but I wanted to be a writer. So after 10th, I joined uh, arts and though arts at that time was looked down upon, only duffers joined art stream. And I had done well, but I still decided to because I wanted to do literature. But after grade 12, uh, that was the first year law was being introduced as a five-year program in India. And Nagpur was one of the cities where it was being introduced. And so my dad said, hey, listen, why don't you do law? It's a professional degree. And you can always pursue your writing on the side. So, and I had a family of lawyers. So I said, all right. So I went on to do my law. And um, as luck would have it, my English professor in my second year of law was the editor of a newspaper. And I won some competition. He had started writing competition at college and he asked me to write for the newspaper. So by the time I finished my law, I was a regular contributor to the newspaper. Um, I, my family law told my dad that, hey, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be a journalist. I want to be a writer. Uh, but then again, as luck would have it, one of the top lawyers offered me a job because I was interning with him. So I ended up working as a lawyer for one year and had a lovely time there. It was a great learning. Um, and then um, I again went to my dad and said, this newspaper is offering me a job and I want to take it up. And dad said, sure, take it up, but first go to college and study. I said, but study for what? He said, no, go and do your degree in journalism. I said, but I write and I write well. The newspaper is offering me a job. Why do you want me to go back to college? So uh, he gave me a very good piece of advice, which of course that point of time, I didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, he said that if, you know, of course you can get a job and you do well, but uh, after a few years, when it comes to the matter of promotions and when there are two people at the same level, who are doing equally well and they have to choose, they will choose the one with the qualification. So, yep, there was me going and applying and giving my entrance test for the mass communication program. And then, of course, armed with a degree in mass communication, I went back to the newspaper and started working there. So, yeah, in spite of doing five years of law and then another degree in mass comm, I'm not a postgraduate, I'm just a double graduate. Did you have any clue, Anju? When you were doing all of this that okay uh, you have a law degree you have a mass comm degree you are setting out to write in newspapers but what was it i'm going to be a journalist and what will i specialize on what will i write on anything that hits me anything that touches me will i be a reporter yeah no i started off as being a reporter because that's what they took me as as a reporter but they soon realized that they were sending me to report one thing I, re I remember Mr. J.J. Irani was there. He, in my first, first reporting, I joined the newspaper and they said, Mr. J.J. Irani is in Nagpur and he's doing a press conference and go for it. I went there. I was like absolutely wet behind my ears just out of, you know, uh, the, just had done my degree and possibly their reporter was not present. They just sent me as a substitute. Ke how wrong it can go? How wrong can a girl go to just note down what this Mr. Irani is saying? I went there, I listened, and it, it just, everything went over my head. I had, I just couldn't recall what he said. What was he talking about? At the end of it, I was so nervous. And what do I go back to the newspaper and what do I write? I have no clue. 
So I went backstage and uh, I, I spoke to the, one of the organizers and said, can I meet Mr. JJ Rani? And uh, they said, but he just gave a press conference. I said, now, you know, I know it's my first day and I was nervous. I said, can I just meet him for 10 minutes? He happened to be there. He met me. He spent half an hour with me. And the report I wrote was like later I came to know all these journalists who later became my friends and they were all stunned that this is nothing that what he said in the press conference but it was a whole lot of personal things that he said and it was more about JJ Rani the person then of course and a little bit about what he said so I think that became my speciality you know when then they would start sending me for that talking to people more human interest stories so um, then I loved, started doing a lot of features around that uh, ended up being the magazine editor uh, for teenagers uh, uh, after a couple of years uh, because I think my ideas were very radical for a city like Nagpur and I think uh, they realized that okay this she'll do well as writing for teenagers so um, yeah and started and, doing uh, did any of your uh, law studies help you or uh, enhance your writing or did you start uh, writing in that space because those education is never a waste so absolutely right Rashmi and I think about that very often that was though you know for those five years of waste but I think what the law degree taught me of course you know today also you you know we are doing drafts for everything you're doing contracts i'm doing my book contract or contracts with other companies i'm working for i think all of that comes back to you the language of the law that comes back and i think what what law also does to you it makes your thinking very very logical so i think that has really helped me so definitely nothing that you study ever ever goes you know away yeah, that's true. So here you are, the star uh, reporter, whose first interview itself ended up being so special. Uh, and uh, then, then on, how did it go? You moved into journalism as a full-time career and moved cities as well? But while I was doing my uh, uh, degree for mass communication, while I was studying that, um, there was this, uh, the first time the armed forces were recruiting women. And um, I said, okay, I want to try that. And uh, dad said, okay, go try it, try your luck. Now it was pretty uh, difficult, right? There were some 40,000 applications. They were selecting some 400 people. I was fortunate enough to be selected in that 400. And then we went to, I went to uh, Varanasi for five days to give my exam. There was physical uh, exam. There was, um, um, you know, of course, a whole lot of those uh, aptitude tests that they do. And then I went to Bangalore to give my Navy exam and, uh, and Air Force, I didn't get selected in the 400, but Army and Navy, I was selected in the top 40 and, but then didn't make it to the three posts that they have for law cadre at that point of time. But it was a wonderful experience and it was a, again, a big high to be able to even reach that point. I'm not sure if my dad would have actually let me go and join five years of law commission because I think the whole thought was that, oh, you five years you're going to go there, your marriage is going to get delayed. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know, but I didn't get selected. So that was the end of it. I also applied to, in the summer holidays, applied to the Film Institute, Film and Television Institute, Pune. They used to have this film appreciation program. And uh, my brother was a graduate from FTII. That's how I knew about this. So I applied for it uh, again, kicked to be selected and spent a glorious two months there and fulfilled my desire to be in a boarding school. I think I'd always had that wish. So, you know, seriously, Anju, a lawyer 
who's now done Mascom, got into journalism, almost selected into the defense forces, and now is in an appreciation course in FTI. Yeah, what and watching movies from the silent, the first movie, the first uh, talkie movie, Alam Ara. Alam Ara. <laughs> and getting, getting to watch movies like, you know, the, uh, the Kurosawa Seven Samurai. And uh, being with all these intellectual people and, uh, you know, again, still a very small town girl, not very confident, but, uh, but learning, absorbing learning. So um, I think some, these are some of the defining moments. And I think another organization called JCs was a huge, huge contributor in grooming my personality. So, so school kids kept coming back into whatever you were doing uh, by yeah. design from the universe and not by choice by yours, right? Yes, yes. But, but, but talking of kids, yeah, I, I was very, very uh, fond of kids absolutely loved kids and uh, I think always um, I grew up reading Dennis the Menace comics also and always wished I had a kid like Dennis the Menace and then like they say don't wish something that you don't really want <laughs> Dennis was born <laughs> Dennis was born but <laughs> yeah. so yes I got married moved to Mumbai um, and uh, my husband was in advertising. He was uh, the uh, film chief at Rediffusion. And so I said, okay, now instead of moving into journalism and finding a job in a newspaper here, let me try advertising because journalism didn't pay well at that point of time. I don't know how well it pays now, but it wasn't a very well-paid and advertising world would pay really well. So I moved to advertising, uh, you know, got into a very, uh, one of the top agencies uh, called Lintas. Um, I worked with them for three and a half years. And uh, then, yes, my Dennis, my older one, Rohil, was born. Uh, so I continued working for some time and then I took a sabbatical to be with him. And I started freelancing for agencies. I uh, wrote some television shows while on that sabbatical. So what was this, a combination of your journalism and film appreciation that helped you evolve into a writer for television? No, so this television uh, show was actually uh, uh, a show on cricket. And um, my family, my husband's family are complete cricket freaks. So I guess... Oh, uh, okay. So you, you have one more feather on that already celebrated hat you're wearing, aren't you? So I, yes, ended up doing that show and I would do a lot of that. You know, there's these, the shopping portals on television would come at midnight. Those ads, I started writing for them and some, um, you know, freelance ad work for other agencies. I started doing that. And then a friend approached me that, hey, you're doing so much of writing work. Can you also do some creative work? Um, you know, there's a big company who wants customized calendars. I said, I've never done it, but uh, put me on, let me go for a meeting. You know, anything was freelancing. So anywhere the money could come from, I would just say yes. And uh, so I went for this meeting. It happened to a big company called Atul. Um, and uh, I made some designs and I gave it to them. They loved it. They loved the concept. And they said, okay, you're on. Now, <laughs> it was something so different, Rashmi. I had to conceptualize a calendar, the concept for the calendar. I had to select models, six models. Uh, I had to go to a, a, a camera person to shoot this, get a photographer, shoot it, 
get it designed, get it printed and get it delivered to the client. And there used to be a huge order, some 10,000 copies of these customized calendars. And um, I ended up doing this for 10 years. Actually, Actually. But, but it didn't stop my other work. I was working as a writer. I was doing my other stuff. But this was like, this would just take six weeks of my time in a year. But they, they were, it was like the cheese, hmm. uh, you know, really paid well and satisfied one creative part of me. And you uh, never moved that cheese from your life for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think after 10 years, I'd had enough. I also remember my second baby was born and he was just three months old and the client said, okay, this time we want to shoot the calendar in Goa. Mm. So there I was bundled my baby up, took him to Goa, would feed him behind the rocks and while the shoot was on and did all of that. Um, but it, it, in all of this, I think I, I very, very grateful to have a very supportive life partner. Sanjeev has been the rock absolutely for me. Um, and uh, I do remember even when I was at Linters, there was a program I was selected for after the birth of my baby and where internationally uh, copywriters were selected to go for this training program. Uh, it was a total precedent in Mumbai and we had to stay there for four days. And I was feeding my baby. My baby was just about four or five months old. And uh, I, I stayed in Juhu in Mumbai and this was a precedent which was cup parade. Um, now Sanjeev would come twice a day from Juhu, would bring Rohil, my, you know, our baby to President Hotel. I'd feed him in the morning, he'd take him back. Then again, he'd bring him in the evening, I'd feed him and he'd take him back. You know, that time we weren't, or probably I wasn't aware of all the breast pumps that we have now. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, yes, I'm very, very fortunate there. And so it's been, I think it's always, you know, whether a man or a woman, I think that um, the, the support of a spouse is really like we say the wind beneath uh, you know your wings yeah true. very true very true yeah so how did uh, in the midst of all of this how was sex education born so I, uh, okay so the, I think the turning point came when um, you know Rohil was my son was about I don't know, four or five. And like every other kid, he started asking me those questions, which all of them asked, right? The first being, how did the baby get into the tummy? How does the, but how does the tummy know that a person is married? Why can't boys have babies? Why do girls have big chest? Um, you know, his questions, I think, reminded me of that promise I had made all those years back in Nagpur at age 22, that I'm going to be very honest with my child. So I tried to be honest but sometimes I didn't have the right words mm -hmm. um, I started looking for books on the subject and I realized that there are no books available in India um, so I wrote to a few cousins abroad and they sent me a couple of books um, you know which were meant for children but yet those books still didn't answer those questions I mean I remember his questions used to be like I said the Dennis the Menace mm -hmm. uh, his questions used to be like quite crazy at point I remember once he'd had he'd been a little rude to us and uh, later he came and apologized to me but he refused to apologize to his dad mm -hmm. and he said but why should I apologize to papa you give birth to me he didn't so I told him that but you know the seed for the baby came from papa and that's he said what's that seed I said okay it's called a sperm he said okay thought about it and he said okay what if papa had not given you his sperm and he'd thrown it on the ground would I have been born from the ground <laughs> So he really challenged me, this boy of mine. Um, 
but I think this was, of course, when he was four and five. I think things came to a head when he was eight years old. Um, he came home from school one day and uh, he used to uh, travel by the school bus. He came home, I opened the door to him and he said, mom, what does USA stand for? I said, you know what USA stands for? Um, he said, yeah, but when I told the older boys in the bus um, that it stands for United States of America, they started laughing at me and saying, Are, bacha hai, you know, bedja, bedja. Now that really got his goat. Why are they calling him a kid and why are they not telling him and why are they laughing about it? So he kept pursuing them and uh, two days later he came back and he said, okay, I know what USA stands for. Now these older kids in the bus have been asking him, have you been to USA? And uh, now he was here at Triumphant Row Hill, standing at the doorway of our house saying that I know what USA means. And uh, it means underskirt area. So these older bodies had been asking him whether he'd been to USA, whether he'd been to the underskirt area. I think that, you know, gave me the realization that how much ever open I am to my child, how much ever I try to protect him, protect him from exposure, protect him, you know, maybe put filters um, or laptops. I think maybe computers had just about come in, maybe, you know, put filters on the computer, but I cannot prevent this exposure 24 seven. He is going to be seeing things. He is going to be hearing things. How do I protect him from that? So I thought the only way is to help him process information to you know, process whatever's coming his way and figure whether it's a fact or it's not a fact and also to come and tell me so that I can help him process it. But then with my younger son, Rishal, he was, he was the quieter one. He wouldn't come and share stuff. He would be very curious and uh, open to receptive to hearing when I talk to him, but he wouldn't come and ask questions. So now I had two different kinds of kids. At least Rohil came to me. I know what was happening. I could help him process it. Rishul didn't come to me. So I didn't know what was happening in his life, what kind of exposure he was getting. That got me thinking that I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure there are parents struggling with this and nobody seems to be talking about it. No school is talking about this. School sessions are not happening. How will the kids get this information? So um, I said, okay, I'm a writer. Let me start penning a book on it. And by the time I had already um, written two books, um, one was a privately commissioned book for an industrialist in Africa. So I traveled to Africa and did that book for that industrialist. And the other was uh, again a commissioned book uh, on Mother Teresa. So um, now I said, okay, let me pen this book on sex. Eh? So I started doing my research online as well as talking to uh, you know, a lot of parents and children and Rashmi, I was completely hooked to the subject. Mm. I realized there was so much there which kids need to know and how important it is for them to know that. Mm. Uh, so while I was doing this, a lot of my friends would tell me, hey, are you researching? Why don't you talk to my child? They have questions. So I started talking to their kids. Then some of my neighbors would ask me. I started talking to my neighboring, uh, you know, neighborhood children. I think uh, at one point somebody said, listen, I have a bunch of kids in my building. Would you talk to them and we'll pay you? So uh, I said, listen, it's not about the payment, but if I'm talking to children, I think I better qualify myself and not just depend on the information that I have, you know, through online or the books that I was reading. We started looking for programs. Again, nothing available. Finally found one program in Mumbai. It was a sex educators program. I went and joined it, uh, studied, gave my exam, got my certification. 
And then I spent a year figuring, okay, I now know what is the content, but how do I present this content to children? How, how, how to make it more palatable, make it more age-appropriate, child-friendly, and engaging. So I spent almost a year creating child-friendly and age-appropriate modules, and then I launched my company uh, called Out of the Box. Okay, one, one second. What happened to your book, which was happening organically with all the information yes. that the kids and mothers were giving? What was happening to the book? At so I wrote the book. Hmm. I started looking for publishers. No, but the book was written from uh, which viewpoint? Was it written for, for a mother? Was it written for a no, child? No, it was written for a child. Oh. It was absolutely okay. written for a child from a child's point of view. Very simple language, very basic explanations. And uh, like I said, because I have uh, worked with children so much, mm -hmm. uh, because I love children and because my mom was a storyteller, I think it came very easily, okay. uh, you know, speaking to kids in that language and figuring out very... Uh, innovative ways of explaining concepts to them. Uh, the book was written, I was looking for publishers. And it was before your certification. And then came the certification. Then came the certification. Okay. And then came, I spent that year creating those modules and the book kind of went on a back burner while all this was happening. Um, once I launched my company, it was called out of the box at that point of time, because I thought sex ed was a very out of the box concept. Um, and very happily launched it. I thought I was in business and, um, and then I realized there was no business because sex does not exist in India. Yeah. Um, I always feel that sex is uh, the biggest, um, it's a national secret. <laughs> True. From the land of the Kama Sutra. <laughs> yes. We parents will go to any lengths to ensure our child does not know what sex is. You know, as, as kids, we want to keep it a secret from them. As teens, we don't want to talk to them because we feel, oh my God, uh, talking to them would be giving them permission to then experiment. And when they're young adults, we don't want to talk to them now because, oh, but they already know it. They're a tech-savvy generation. So I don't know how this transition happens from I don't want to talk to my child to now my child knows it all. How does this transition happen? How are you expecting your child to know? Do you know where your child is going to access this information? Do you know the kind of problems which are arising out of that? Sure. And so at that point, I realized that I can't even reach the child till I don't change the mindsets of the adults. Yeah. Problem was in the word itself, in the word sex education itself. So parents were reacting to the word sex it, the word sex was completely magnifying for them and the word education was becoming invisible. Mm. So I said, okay, I need to tackle that first. So I again did my research, spoke to lots of people and then came out with a talk which, which is running even today and is very popular. It's called Break the Wall of Silence. Um, I've identified about six blocks parents have about why they don't want to give this education to a child. Right from uh, it's against our culture to it will corrupt my child to it will make my child think about things which are not there, will make my child want to experiment and so on and so forth. And I started offering this talk free of course to anybody who'd care to listen, whether it was a school PTA group, uh, a corporate, uh, you know, parent meet, um, even, a, you know, women's kitty party groups. I said, okay, if I have a group of six or seven women, I go and talk. Hmm. Um, and I started doing that. Um, it got a lot of traction, um, but there were also times, you know, when there were 
supposed to be 200 people and only two would turn up yeah yeah that's okay uh, yeah <laughs> that's normal but were you on social media also were you doing this on facebook and i was doing this on facebook but it was also a lot of word of mouth oh okay so and then that this talk helped me convert uh, my workshops convert these parents into work, sending their kids because now they uh, understood they kind of trusted me uh, they figured that okay she has a way with children and she'll be able to explain it and then they started sending the kids for workshops so this kind of became my marketing talk so I was kind of getting two birds with a stone eight I was changing mindsets unlocking mindsets and at the same time it was marketing for me and converting into workshops so uh, yeah, that's how, uh, you know, my company started. And of course, I went through this entire thing of people's perception of me, but probably I'll come to that a little later. Um, but I think it was around uh, 2017 is when I realized that, um, you know, um, sex education is no more an out of the box concept. It's mainstream. We just need to, you know, kind of take away the taboo from it. And from there emerged the word untaboo. And I rebranded the company. And uh, yeah, today my company is called Untaboo. So yes, that is the story of how Untaboo came about. But in this journey, uh, Anju, uh, because like Steve Jobs said, you look back and connect all the dots. We'll start with the recent dots that have uh, formed from out of the box to Untaboo. Uh, and in that, do you see a change in acceptance, a change in knowledge and awareness because of social media or more of miscommunication because of social media amongst the children that you were talking to and over the years talking to? In Has the, children, been, the children? Yeah, in the children, the awareness of the children when they come to your workshop for the first time and yeah. how parents approach the subject when you talk to them uh, the first time, very first time saying what you do through the workshop. So I'm going to talk about the children first. Um, the children are extremely open to receiving this education. Mm. They have tons of questions. And we've been, I've been across India to take my sessions. Now, it is, whether it's from a small town like Ajmer, a child is from there, or a city like Mumbai, um, the questions are similar. The questions are similar. The concerns are similar. Attitudes are pretty similar. Um, because see, the world has opened up from them. The internet is there, right? So they are no more a small town child or a big town uh, you know, uh, child kind of. So the uh, curiosity is there. The only thing which has changed from when I started this in 2011 to now 2021, um, is that yes, there's a whole lot of awareness among children. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, concepts very young children want to know. Probably at age, um, you know, probably 16, 17 earlier when somebody would want to know what is a gay, today they want to know at age eight. Um, today, a 10 year old would ask you what is a condom, what is rape? Because there's so much of exposure. Right. So that is the difference. But I think that um, the fact that as parents, if we believe that they are a net savvy generation and they learn on their own, I really like would like to pass on the message to those parents that please, the Internet is full of information, but there's unfiltered information. 
they do not know the facts. I have 18 year olds tell me things like, man, you know, AIDS is a poor man's disease. It does not happen to people like us. Or the fact that, you know, if you, ma'am, if you jump up and down after sex, you will not become pregnant. So contraceptives are not required. There are a whole lot of myths. There are a whole lot of wrong information. Um, you know, they pop eyepills like candies. Um, so it's definitely do not depend on the internet being your child's sex educator. Mm. Very valid, uh, Anju, because now uh, that parents know the child has access, now most of the education itself has gone online. Uh, how are there? Okay, I'm going to ask you, I, I'm sure the answer is going to be no, but was there any question which completely threw you off gear amongst the conversations that you had over the years with children? So, um, you know, have actually become shockproof over the years. <laughs> I can understand. And, uh, I think the first thing I learned and promised myself is I'm going to be absolutely non-judgmental. Okay. Now, uh, saying it and actually practicing it are two different things. And, the, and actually, uh, it takes a while to actually practice that. And I think I've achieved that nirvana state of being non-judgmental. Um, and it's, it's very, very important because only when you're non-judgmental and you take each query of theirs as a query of a very natural curiosity, which is coming and you answer it with all seriousness. Mm. I think the kids react to that. Mm. But I do remember one incident. Uh, I was in a school and we would keep this anonymous curiosity box where they could, you know, just uh, put in their queries and we'd make it compulsory for everybody to write on a piece of paper and every half an hour put in a question so that nobody feels that, oh, look, that person is putting so many chits, you know, so everybody had to write, even if you don't have a question, just make a smiley face, but pop it in the box. Now, um, I would answer all the questions. And at the end of the session, I opened it up, was answering questions. And there was one question there. And these were, uh, I think these were 11th graders. And there was one question there which said, uh, uh, will you uh, remove your t-shirt and show us your breasts? Now, I could have very easily chosen not to read that question because it's in my hand. I could have just said, oh, it's a smiley face and I would have kept it aside. Um, and that's the first, first thought which comes to your mind. Okay, ignore it. But um, I decided to read out that question and I read out the question and I said, I'm so glad that somebody's put, you know, has put this question. Um, I just want to tell you that, you know, you're in the 11th grade, another three years, four years down the line, you will be in the work school and you'll come under the laws of uh, sexual harassment. And if you post a question like this to anybody at that time of time, you will be in trouble with the law. And uh, but let's let's see what is the sexual harassment? What is the difference between flirting and moving in a very thin line between flirting and sexual harassment, uh, you know, making sexist comments and sexual harassment. So then I started talking about sexual harassment to them. So I think it's if you take every question at its face value and move it towards something that you can teach them something, I think that's a brilliant job, even as a parent, of course, as an educator, but as a parent too. Because I think one most important thing also I've realized that these uh, children test you. They will initially, they're in just testing you. They will throw out these shocking questions at you, um, questions which they think will throw you off or embarrass you. 
they want to check only once they check and they know that hey you know what she is reacting very normally to all our questions is when suddenly these kind of dam opens up and then comes out all these concerns all this curiosity all the sharings and that is beautiful yeah seriously i think that becomes the safe space for them to explore yes yeah, yeah yeah and i think that was so lovely anju when you said because i i was just thinking of the mind of the student who wrote it and right. uh, brilliant okay now another question on, along the lines of uh, any moment where or any incident where you got a feedback and you were so happy you're in the space of making a difference that i am really grateful those moments happen very often um you know i suddenly bump into uh, people and uh, when i'm introduced is it hang on wait i think my child attended my your workshop and i can't tell you how it's changed my life uh, we were recently i was at a friend's home and uh, um she had other friends there who i didn't know and somebody was talking about that oh anju's into sex education and you know probably if you have kids you can look up her workshops so there was another mom she said oh you know what i came across this book and it's a fantastic book i loved it so much that i bought 50 copies and i distributed to all my neighboring kids you know no need for any workshop just buy them this book i said oh what's the name of the book she said oh it, it's called how i got my belly but i said okay do you know who's written that uh, she said uh, i don't remember the writer's name but it's a fantastic book then of course i went and told her that i have authored that book so uh, i i think when it suddenly comes you know like that without you reaching out to people and asking how you found it i think those are you know beautiful moments in fact i was doing um, so as antabu we've also done a play on puberty and safety called growing up so you were asking me for patterns in my life right and you've seen that i've done a whole lot of things from law to graduation to whether it's ftii or armed forces so basically i loved doing various things in life uh, now when i'm when i was doing sex education i i was just doing sex education right so then i started looking for interesting formats to um, you know teach and to propagate sex education so one of the ways i used was uh, a play uh, so i created a theatrical play called growing up and it's a play on puberty and safety and um, uh, it's an educational play but it's a complete laugh riot um, and it's a musical uh, in fact we have a qawwali on the male genitals in that uh and it's meant for kids and parents to uh, you know see together so uh while we were rehearsing for that play uh, the actors were all adults they were all about 18 to 22 year olds but they were playing kids um so after and a lot of them didn't know you know the content or it was just about puberty and safety but they said oh my god we are 19 and 20 but there's still so much we don't know i mean nobody spoke to us about that a lot of boys didn't know the process of periods um and a whole lot of stuff you know stuff like that so when when the first show on our premiere night at the end of the show this mom came to me and she was one of the actors mother and she just came and hugged me she said i can't tell you what difference this has made my son started acting in this um you know show 
and I've always wanted to have these conversations with him, but I never could. And now he's like 20. I thought Ki, now I obviously can't have. But after he started rehearsing for this play, he came home and started talking about it. She said, it's opened up like a you know barrage of conversations for us. And we're having such open conversations. And I, I just want to thank you. And she kept hugging me. I think those are the moments which, you know, um, keep you going because sex education is a very, very difficult field to be in. Seriously, Anju, I think you're an outlier of sorts when it came to this choice of uh, stream of education that you chose because education is one thing India takes any amount of, but sex education is one space. For me, when uh, we spoke the very first time, you were a typical outlier who went into a space that everybody knows is important, but nobody ventured and had the courage to go there. And you did it so beautifully as a mother. And uh, you saw it from a parent perspective and gifted it to the children who needed it, making it easier on a lot of parents. Uh, so now we'll go back and see your entire pattern and when you're <laughs> connecting all the dots about whatever happened. Uh, are there any stories where you have felt that, oh my God, this conversation opened not one generation. You just shared about a mother and son, but a generation, the generation prior, the grandmothers, uh, have you got any feedback like that where uh, the grandmother's thought process altered as much because uh, there's, there are a lot of questions. Actually, Rashmi, I have two incidents to share there. Uh, um, one was during um, one of these talks, which I do break the wall of silence. And uh, it was for, uh, I think, um, some organization. So they had parents there and they had some grandparents there for the talk. And um, end of the talk, um, you know, this granddad and grandmom came to me and said, you know, we so wish our kids had, we had heard your talk, you know, probably 30 years back when we had our kids. But we are still glad we were here today because we have grandkids who are like two and three years old. And we are going to go back and we're going to teach our, my kid and my son and my daughter-in-law about all this. And we're going to implement all those changes. And we're going to ensure that we raise our grandchildren in a different way. So that is very heartening to know that, um, you know, you're able to change the minds. And it's, it's it's generation of conditioning that we all have. To be able to change their minds at that age was a beautiful experience for me. And I think the second one, which is a, one of my most favorite stories, and I use it as a, one of my incidents I spoke about in my TEDx talk too, was about this 12-year-old uh, boy who had come for our workshop. And um, when we speak about periods, uh, we also speak to the boys, of course, about periods. And we have an entire gender sensitization session there where we talk about the myths around periods and why they started when they started and how we are continuing with them and how even if it's followed it in, in your families, don't fight it, but at least educate your family about it and bring about those changes slowly. Now this boy went back home and uh, he made his grandmom sit and he told her that I want to show you something. And he started this video on periods for her. She was shell shocked, uh, shell shocked for two reasons. One is, you know, at the nerve of her grandson, to talk to her about periods and show her a video on periods. I mean, the nerve of the guy. 
And two, she was shocked because um, this is the first time in all her life she actually knew how periods happen. Most of us, most of the women, forget the men, the most of women spend their entire life having periods, but not exactly knowing how the process happens. Because you're never told, right? Growing up, of course, parents are now talking to their daughters, but earlier it just was, okay, okay, you're going to get this every month. Here's a pad. This is how to use it. Just keep mum about it. Don't tell anybody and just use it, right? There was so much of secrecy about it. There was so much of shame associated with it. So this grandmom was really shocked, but she was also taken aback because she kind of now understood how it happened. And then he started talking to her about how it was not dirty blood. It was just the lining of the uterus and how these myths had started. He started explaining those logical things which we had told him in the workshop. Uh, it took some conversations over a week. Apparently, he was talking to his grandmom. And then this boy's mother called me up one day. And her voice was all choked. And uh, she said, I, I can't even begin to tell you the change that you've made in our life. She, she told me about what this boy had done at home and how initially the grandmom was angry and then she was amazed. And uh, finally, it came to the point where she called all her daughter-in-laws and she told them that, um, you know, I possibly it will take me a while to change completely. But um, this boy has, you know, kind of taught me that what I am doing to you, not allowing you to enter the kitchen when you have your periods or not worship the deity at home when you have your periods, um, I, I give you permission to do that now. That was such a huge change in a conservative family. And she said, you have not just changed our family, but the generations to come in our family. I, I, I speak about that and I always get these goosebumps, Rashmi. I mean, I my voice also kind of chokes up at this point that, um, you know, sometimes you don't realize the level of impact that a small session like this can make. That's huge impact, Andrew. That's such huge impact and such required impacts in our society, especially. Mm -hmm. And uh, now with the pandemic setting in, everything took a back step. And you know, there are these sessions where there are some shy children who don't come forth, where one-on-one -on -one interaction face-to-face -face clears a lot of those hesitations. Right. Have your sessions moved online and do you find any challenges in them? So absolutely. Like anybody else, I think we face the same challenges and like everybody else, we shifted gears and moved online. Um, we had to definitely, you know, the engagement uh, changed because in the in-person uh, sessions, we used to have a lot of games. Um, the games were just meant to help them open up, share their inhibitions, make the sessions fun. Uh, so that they shed their inhibitions and are openly able to, you know, share and accept what we are telling them. Now, the online was a challenge, but we, uh, the Antabu team did work on it. We tried to figure ways to make it engaging still. So I think the only thing which has happened is instead of a one-day workshop, which we typically have, now we have to divide it into two days because retaining the interest online for that many hours at a stretch is a challenge. So we just divide it into two days. But other than that, uh, we are finding that, um, you know, the interactions are beautiful. In fact, we've figured out a way how they can anonymously ask even while being online and we use that practice. And um, it's wonderful. 
So, you know, all our workshops, Rashmi, are, of course, we work with the child. We have the workshop for the child, but every workshop is followed up by an hour and a half session with the parent. One mm -hmm. hour is purely for the parent and then half an hour is a combined session between the parent and child. So the idea is to break ice between the parent and child so that this conversation can be carried forward at home. You know, at Untabu, um, we figured very early on in life that um, to make people accept sex education, we have to present it in a very non-threatening and fun manner. They realize the importance then of what you're, you know, you're trying to tell them. So uh, all our workshops are fun and engaging. Um, the play that we did, like I mentioned to you, is a, you know, a complete laugh riot. The columns that I write, the blogs that I do are also, you know, you know, has a, you know, kind of a tinge of humor there. And then I also use the platform of stand-up comedy to um, uh, propagate sex education to, so I kind of make them laugh over their mindset about sex education, the Indian mindset about sex education, and then quietly plant a seed for a new thought there. So that has been one interesting, uh, uh, you know, part of my life doing learning actually how to do stand up. I went and attended classes for it, learned how to do it, created my content. And uh, yes, I use that platform. So that's been very, very interesting. And if any parent or any organization wants to get in touch with you, uh, is there a Facebook page that they can go and connect or do you have anything like that that you can share? Yes, absolutely. We have a website called untabu.in. We have a Facebook page called Untabu. We are there on Instagram as Untabu. We are there on LinkedIn as Untabu. So definitely please look us up, follow us. And soon, in fact, we are launching our online platform for sex education. So it's going to be Untabu online where it's absolutely, you can just buy the session for your children. And these are all animation-based learning videos. And we really, really hope that, you know, it's going to be accepted very well. So it that's, will, that's it, will. it will for sure, Ranju. Uh, but as we are leaving, uh, three life lessons that you have learned because your life seems to be such a beautiful space of so many different nuggets that you can pick from. I know picking three would be tough for you, but the top three that you have looking back at your life. So there's one... Um, one, one very small philosophy I follow in life which comes from my parents that uh, there are two ways to do, it, to do things. One is uh, just do it and the other way is do it well. Now, it's a very simple statement, but I think it's really carried me far in life. Whether it's, you know, taking a small little thing, whether it could be anything in life, a small luncheon you're hosting for just two people or you know, you're organizing a big event or a workshop, anything. But I think this, you know, I've, I've stuck by this philosophy. And I think um, that is something I truly, truly believe in. And the other thing I've kind of mentioned to you that um, don't be judgmental. Yeah. Um, everybody has a reason. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a perspective. You don't know their story. So don't judge. Um, just accept people the way they are. I think everybody says this, but I think I have learned to live this. And um, yeah, it's worked for me. <laughs> I don't know the third one, but these are definitely two things I live by. Oh, wow. 
And I think the third one for me from your life that I'm going to add to that is just follow your heart. When the question comes from the universe, you're ready. Just take it and move forward. You definitely be an outlier like Anju. I'm going to, in fact, add to that, Rashmi, uh, is that I've always believed and I've always told children this in my workshops that never be afraid to take diversions in life uh, and never be afraid to take a U-turn. God allows those U-turns and you'll see that your life changes. Yeah. And I think that's what I have done in my life. Um, you know, taken a whole lot of diversions, um, ultimately found my, you know, purpose in life. But all the diversions I took all taught me something and they've all beautifully merged in the journey I'm undertaking today. And, you know, it's so wonderfully ties up the whole thing, the you and the taboo together make it untaboo and make it so beautiful in the work that you are spreading, which is conversations that are necessary and not taboo that we as a society put into our lives. Thank you so much, Anju. Thank you for doing the magical work that you're doing. God bless you. And may you continue to inspire and be the change that you are taking with you wherever you go. All the very best. And thank you so much for being on You and I with Rashmi Shetty. Thank you so much, Rashmi. It's been absolutely wonderful. You make sharing so easy. So go out there, parents, open those conversations, um, ensure that nothing is taboo at home. And you'll find how relationships turn even more beautiful. With that, we come to the end of this episode of You and I with Rashmi Shetty. Do let us know your feedback and your guest suggestions. Write in to rashmi.thethirdeye at gmail.com That is R-A-S-H-M-I dot T-H-E-T-H-I-R-D-E-Y-E at gmail.com